0: for somebody much more seasoned than I am. But I did have a burden of my heart that I wanted to bring a a two-week message to you. And both of these are going to be from the book of Mark. Today we'll be in uh, chapter 4 and continuing on uh, next week in in chapter 6. And what we're going to see in both of these lessons is we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ. Now that might sound like, well, we always do that, but I want to say that we're, we're going to be looking at him in, in, in maybe ways that we haven't truly focused on yet. And one of the things that I found interesting ab- about what I wanted to speak about was there was something in common. Even though next week we're going to dare to compare our lives to Jesus' life. But something in these two uh, messages we have in common uh, to the point where if you know anything about real estate, they say this is the most important part of real estate. If you know anything about business, this is the thing that makes a business go or not go. And they say, to give their term, Three words, location, location, location. These two messages are about a location. They could not have happened if they were not in the location that they were at. As we think about that as the background for some of what we're going to be talking about, I would like us now to ask God's blessing on this time of reading and studying His Word. <coughs> Lord God, now I ask that you be with us this morning, Lord, that the clarity of your message and your word come through clearly, Lord, that I and we decrease so that you may increase, that we be attentive to what you would tell us in your word, Lord, and the truth that is there. We thank you for allowing us to be together in this place, Lord. We ask that you continue to watch over our brothers and sisters in Christ from this church that are apart from us, Lord. Keep them safe, and on this day that we glorify and honor you, that we truly are united, whether we be apart or in the same building, that to you only will that praise be given. And in Christ's name I pray, amen. We're going to be looking at this week, chapter 4 in Mark, beginning at verses 35 through the end of the chapter, and I'm going to read it, and you can follow along if you would like. On that day... When evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion." And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, I said that this was about location. And what do we know about the location uh, in this story so far? Well, two things. There's a boat involved, and it's on the sea, on the water. And before we get into the message of that, I want to talk about those two elements first of all. If we look back at the beginning of uh, this chapter, in chapter 1, it says that Jesus had been preaching all day and he was sitting in the boat talking to those people in the crowd. So this boat was actually being used also as a podium. That is where he had been. That's where he continued. And I think that one of the things that we have to understand about that, in his word it says, uh, just as he was. Nothing had changed. He was in that boat just as he was. All day. The other thing that we know about the boat is that when it set sail, it had 12 apostles in it, 12 disciples, and himself. So the size of the boat had to be such that it would hold at least 13 people. And the other thing that we see is where it's located. This is on the Sea of Galilee. So it was probably, in all reality, was a fishing boat. I don't think pleasure boats were real big at that time. It probably was something that was used for utility of fishing. And past that, it really doesn't say anything. Well, in, in studying for this lesson in the commentaries, um, some of the commentaries made a point to tell us what they presumed about the boat and I think that would be helpful that we look at some of the things that could have been about the boat. In 1986, along the Sea of Galilee on the shore, found in the mud was a boat that was to be about the size of what they think a boat for fishing would have been at that time. It was 26 feet, 26 and a half feet long, 7 and a half feet wide, and 4 and a half feet wide. Now, that's a pretty good-sized boat, actually. Now, I worked with a lot of gentlemen that owned boats, and they would talk about their boats, especially when they got a new boat. And the one thing that I heard them always saying was, I just got a nice 24-footer. <coughs> or, yep, I got rid of the 18-footer and went up to a... 30-footer. Well, we didn't call them boats anymore. We called them footers because evidently this was important to them as to how big this boat was and they referred to it. So in this context, this boat was pretty, probably pretty good sized. It probably was like this one that was found was powered by four people that rowed it with oars. Probably not a a sail on it. It had a little bit of a fore and aft um, deck on it. It held probably 15 people at the most. And one of the things that I found interesting in in what they talked about was that they used carbon dating 14, whatever that might be. If uh, Brother Steve was here today, he could probably tell us exactly what that is. But it's said that that boat was probably from a time period of somewhere between 100 and 20 B.C. to 40 A.D. So this was probably what we were looking at for a boat. Two other things that we can probably see that would lend uh, credence to the size and shape of this boat, where there were two mosaics found in this area, uh, was dated from the 1st century, depicting a boat very much like the what was uncovered in the mud, and the other one was from the 6th century. Both boats used for fishing on the Sea of Galilee. The next thing we said about location was the Sea of Galilee itself. If you're not familiar with that, if you have a, a Bible that has maps in the back of it, the Sea of Galilee, if you look... And, and see the region of Jesus' uh, ministry, it's usually called, it's in the top third of that area. And the Sea of Galilee, from what I can figure, was about 15 miles long and uh, seven and a half miles wide. So it was going this way. It was longer than it was wide. In comparison, that would be about half the size of what Saginaw Bay would be in this area itself. Not counting out in this area, but in general in a a circle. The other thing about the Sea of Galilee is that it is 700 feet below sea level, surrounded by an area that has a lot of hills and small mountains, especially on the eastern side of it. And then about 30 miles to the north of that is a mountain called Mount Herman, Herman, excuse me, Mount Herman that rises 9,200 feet in elevation. Now, if you above sea level. Now, if you add the 700 feet of where the Sea of Galilee is below sea level to the 9,200 you come up with almost 10,000 feet of difference from the Sea of Galilee to the top of this mountain. That's a lot. What that tends to do is make, make a lot of uncertain wind and air around the Sea of Galilee. So much so that it was known for what they called the early evening northeasters. Storms that would kick up quickly to the point where they actually t- called them Shakira, which is Arabic for the shark. These are the storms that were known to be in that location. I go through this to add this detail because Mark put the most detail into this story of any gospel account, and there's reason for it. He wanted us to understand and know that this is fact. That's why others have told us about the boat, Folks, we're dealing with a time when people do not believe our Bible as being credible. Mark made very sure that he laid the groundwork to say this happened. And you know what's unique about that is? We're going to be talking about a miracle. A miracle in regular time and in a place in something that existed, a boat on a lake. Now, we have to look and understand what God's word says. And the first thing that God's word has said to us today is, what does this story reveal about Jesus? What does the story say about him? What are we going to see? Well, the short answer is, Jesus has the power of God, because he is God, to conquer the powers of darkness arrayed against him. The second thing, Jesus shows himself to be true God and true man. One one statement can't be taken apart from the other. But this is what we're going to be looking at. What does Mark's account tell us? It tells us this. Jesus, the man, had been in this boat all day preaching. He was tired. He told his disciples to set sail. Well, I can't say that, can I? Because I just said that it didn't have a sail. Go over to the other side. Row to the other side. One way of getting over there. And as they left, we see that God's word says that there were other boats with them. You know, when we were studying Mark uh, in uh, our Sunday school a few months ago, Um, we might not have paid much attention to that little fact. But when we came to find out and talk about when the disciples had to pick another uh, disciple because Judas had killed himself, it said that the criteria was that they were going to choose from uh, the men that were with Jesus the whole time, from the time that he was baptized until his crucifixion. So we might think that these other people were in the other boats. There was reason that Jesus wants to, God wants us to know that his word never contradicts each other, itself. It's always brought together. So as Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat, and it says on a cushion, now I, I, I say the back of the boat, and the stern is the back of the boat, right? I'm not a boat guy, but I think that's called the back, right? (laughs) It says that he's on a cushion. Well, most commentators think that this cushion was nothing more than a bunch of sandbags that were probably there for ballast, for the boat itself. So Jesus sleeping there was probably not in a comfortable position, but he, he truly was asleep. And the storm rages. Rages to the point that men in that boat feared for their lives. Men in that boat that had been called out, some of them from from the profession of what? Being fishermen on that very body of water. That tells me that storm must have been something. It got their attention, and it got their attention bad to the point where they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? At that very moment, when they went to him completely asleep, he wasn't pretending to be asleep. He was the man asleep from a day of doing what he does, which is teaching other people. At that very moment, when he awoke, I don't know if he stood up, I don't know if he was just sitting there, but at that moment, he was what Paul tells us he is, and that is in Colossians 1:15. Paul wrote, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That sleeping man is now the God of all of creation. And I'm going to be looking at, first Col- uh, at Colossians verses 1, chapter 1, 15, and a couple other verses passages from there if you want to turn there if not I'm going to be reading them we have to understand who this is now that Paul is talking about as the firstborn of creation Paul tells us that he is the creator Jesus is the creator in verse 16 he says for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he created it all. This is who Jesus was at that very moment. And what we have seen in our study in small groups of creation is when um, Mr. Ham is talking about through his time of being questioned uh, question about creation. Somebody will say, well, where did all the galaxies come from? And his way of always answering things is God. Well, what about all those mountains and all those things that we have to take into consideration? How did they have God? And he'll go on and just say, the answer is, if you're talking about creation, the answer is always the same. It's God. He is also, Paul tells us, the sustainer. See what he says in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God, at this very moment, like in that story, has kept everything in its perfect time. We say that he is sovereign. God just didn't create the heavens and the earth and have them spinning around and never again check on them or have to do anything with them. He is in control every minute of every day. When God, the man Jesus Christ, was asleep in that boat, the world was not on autopilot. He was still in charge. He was sustaining it. And we also see through Paul's words that he is the goal. To understand the goal better, he is also the purpose. He is also the objective. See what he says in verse second half of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. We so easily look around us and are amazed by what we see in creation. Late in in the evening when Denise and I go for a walk, the last hour of the day, we see the sun coming down. And Hampton Township is not one of those breathtaking areas of the world. But when that sun is going down and it shines through the clouds, and you see the majesty of him. It's all about Him. The creation and everything that there is speak of Him. Even on the day that He was born, angels sang praises and worshipped Him. Everything is pointing to Him. So now we see that the glory and honor is to Him and to Him only. How does Jesus, the creator and sustainer, hear the the? Disciples questions and respond. Well, how does he do it? He stands. I'm not going to say that. I don't know if he he stood up. He says three words. Very, very simple. Peace, be still. And then the next thing that happens is a great calm. I, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine from going from such a raging storm to such a great calm. If you have ever seen or know anything about water, any time that water is put in motion, if you drop a pebble in the middle of it, it goes out. and It keeps going out until it finally dissipates. For something to happen that quick that it changed, that must have really got their attention. I remember one morning when my brother and I and my father were going fishing, and my brother lived at the mouth of the Collin River at that time. It was early in the morning, and I had never seen a morning when Saginaw Bay was that calm. It was eerie calm. There was nothing moving. And across the river from my brother lived a gentleman by the name of Les Stodeker, if that name means anything to you, he was the builder of hydroplanes, and he built the boat Miss, Miss Budweiser, which was the fastest boat in the world at that time. That morning, he took that boat and put it in the water, and he was taking, I, I shouldn't say that boat, meaning Miss Budweiser, the one that he was building at that time, And he took it out into this calm, calm water, and this boat with this V12 airplane engine in it went out into the bay, and one thing I also learned about the calm of the water is how, even a mile away, that motor, that engine, sounded like it was right next to us. How that calmness took and propelled that Stillness of that time, and because of all that noise, it was much worse. But I believe in the what we see in this text is that that calm that was there and the quietness. They could probably hear each other, like they were talking to each other one on one, and everybody maybe in those other boats could know that something had happened and the disciples were saying what kinda man is this who is this what is Jesus answer to them he says why are you so afraid have you still no faith now we have to shift our focus From who Jesus is, true man, and God, creator, sustainer, and goal of all the universe, to the disciples. And what we have to see from the disciples is this. The disciples, and we can take that word disciples out of there and also put we. The disciples' lack of understanding and faith in Jesus leads to fear. Jesus didn't address them for the way that he awoke, was awakened by them and said, aren't you worried about that we're going to perish? Now that to me, the way way that they came to him was not in a respectful way at all. They were very self-seeking. What got their attention was they were in trouble and talked to Jesus accordingly. But he made no comment about that. And you know, part of the irony about that is that it wouldn't be that long from right then that Jesus, in his hour of need, would ask his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, Would you just pray with me an hour? Would you be able to do that? I I need something. This is a a, a terrible time that I'm going through, and I want you to pray for me. And they would sleep. And he asked them again, and they would sleep. And did it come down to that it was written off by just a case of heavy eyelids? But what did they say to him? What did they say to him in reply? I'm sorry, what did he say to them? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Was that the fact of the matter? Absolutely. They had not gotten to the point where they knew how to understand and to trust in him. Why do you think that Jesus can sleep in the middle of a storm? He knows who is in charge and in control of all that there is. Yes, he was a man, but yes, he is also the God of the universe. You know, right before this passage came about, we see so many times that the disciples had witnessed Jesus healing people and taking lepers and cleansing them. Taking unclean spirits, and in the same words that he used toward this st- storm, rebuking them and calling them out. I don't know who was the author of that storm. Was it the devil himself that Jesus used those same words to rebuke that storm like it was an evil spirit? Well, that could be, I don't know how powerful the devil is, but I do know that the God of the universe. Is more powerful than the devil ever could be. And that will never change. What must have gotten to the disciples at that time was the difference between healing and seeing lives change physically was here was a man that they said or could witness, took on things of the universe and were in charge and was completely in charge of it. The wind and the sea and this terrible storm are subject to him. They could not fathom it. The question for us today is the same as it was for the disciples that evening in that small boat. This is the question. Is it easier for us to accept God at work in the calm of our everyday life than it is to trust and believe in him when the windstorms in our own lives rage. Sure, we can think, well, God's with us today and things are going pretty good. But when we're up against that time, when we have no understanding of what's going on, do we really understand who he is then? Mark wrote this account, as we've seen in our Sunday school lesson when we were looking at this, Uh, John Mark wrote this as the first gospel probably a little after 60 AD in 64 AD to 68 AD was some of the worst persecution that ever happened to Christians when they were killed and tortured for their faith because of Nero fact historical fact was Mark, at that time, trying to equip the saints of that time for what has already happened and how Jesus can deliver from the midst of a storm. I don't think it's a coincidence that he put that much time and effort and detail into his account of the storm. This is not a lesson in enduring adversity with patience the emphasis on this story is on who Jesus is. And that is, he's the creator, sustainer, the goal, and savior. This is not an example of how to avoid adversity in life. It is a reminder in whom to trust when it comes. And it will come. I don't know each person here their location today in adversity. For some of you, I have a better understanding than I do of others. And part of that comes about because I talked to some of you and you've shared some of the burdens of your heart, some of those storms that have come about in your lives, whether it's on a one-on-one or Wednesday nights in a time of prayer when burdens of our heart are lifted up, or whether it's in our small group but I know that they do exist. I know that husbands and wives have a good, strong, loving marriage, and in the blink of an eye, adversity comes into their lives, and their marriage seems to be completely consumed by forces against it. And they wonder, how are we gonna get through this? How did this happen? And Jesus said, God says, my way is perfect. One man, one woman. It is not good for man to be alone. I will create for you a helpmate. And he tells us how to love. He says, husbands, love your wives, wives, love your husbands, as I love the church. Do you realize the symbolism in what we see in this boat, in Jesus, in these disciples? So many times it has been depicted as showing the church today. We're together with Christ, all believers. All around us is storm but he is always in charge. He is the one that is with us. He is the one that will sustain us. There are people that have lost their jobs. Hours have been cut back. Financial instability has been part of their lives. And they wonder how they're going to face it. They get to a point where they just got the transmission paid for, and the orthodontist is calling and saying, those payments are late. And we wonder, how are we going to get through that? And Jesus tells us, don't lay up for yourself those things that moth and rust and will corrode, because they mean nothing. You trust in me. I'm the one that will get you through it. We like look at people that when we get to a point in our lives, we reverse roles with our parents. And we say, how are we going to get them through this time? I have my own family and all these responsibilities. Now I have these parents, a parent, that I have to take care of and love and get them through this time. And that parent might say to you, why me? And God's word says to us, honor your father and your mother. He'll take care of the rest. Just honor him. I don't know how it sometimes, but it will happen. You know, this same God that we're talking about is the God that at one point in history opened up a vast body of water and allowed his people to walk through it on dry land to their safety because it was his will. And he took that same water, closed it behind him, them on their enemies and consumed those that would reslave them and take them captive again. That's the God that is watching out over us. We see a loved one that in the midst of cancer has maybe one more opportunity for life has to have a medical procedure. And at that time, when they're going through that cancer, they say, you know, if this comes out to the point where I'm healed, I win. But if not, and I die, I win. Their strength comes the Lord himself those are the times that we're saying that we're going to surrender all that we have all that we are without knowing what the future completely brings to the Lord and say God you're in charge when we get to that point and we understand that we are not in control that God is whether we know the future or not then maybe we will get to the point where Paul was and wrote Romans eight thirty eight and thirty nine. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you truly allow our hearts to be shaped and molded and surrendered to you, Lord, that in adversity, in times of anxiety, when we do not know what the next day will bring, Lord, we know that you are still in charge. that you are watching over us, that you love us. And if you are concerned about a sparrow, Lord, how much more your crown of creation, we as men and women. Lord, I pray that we continue to seek you first in all that we do. We thank you for allowing us to be your servants. And in Christ's name I pray, amen. We continue with...